Philly Built is brought to you by phillyzoning.com, which is powered by Anastasio Law. Our offices are located at 2016 Spruce Street in Philadelphia. The history of Philadelphia, like the history of any great city, is written in stone for anyone to read. Hi folks, welcome to the second season premiere of Philly Built. No section of Philadelphia is dealing with as many blessings and challenges of the city's great rebuild more than West Philly's third council district. Today, council member Jamie Gauthier is gonna talk to us about the man who inspired her to seek public office and what it's like being sued in federal court as she fights for affordable housing and why she broke with her squad mates on city council in the wake of the tragic death of Walter Wallace Jr. Council member Jamie Gauthier, welcome to Philly Built. Hi, how are you? Very good, thank you. It's so nice to see you, and I really appreciate you taking the time. No problem. Uh, to, to spend with us. I know you are running for re-election currently, and time is quite a commodity. So um, before we get into stuff, uh, tell folks who are listening about the 3rd District. I know it generally as West Philadelphia, but tell us, uh, you know, generally speaking, uh, the parameters. Sure. Um, it's It includes a big part of West and Southwest Philadelphia and all of University City. And so um, the specific boundaries are uh, the Schuylkill River um, to the east, Tom's Creek Parkway to the west, um, to the north, currently up to... Uh, Gerard in some spots and to the south um, down to Passyunk in some spots so it's a pretty big um, set of you know, pretty diverse neighborhoods you're not the first person in your family to get into politics I understand your father ran for district attorney of Philadelphia is that right yes my father ran for district attorney twice um, his name is Leon Williams he ran in um, 1997 and in 2001 both times as an independent uh, candidate it's an independent against I guess Lynn Abraham yes both times yeah point, right Bucking the party, bucking the system. Bucking the party, bucking the system, pushing for change, you know, really pushing um, the idea of a progressive DA's office about 20 years before we got one. (laughs) Did that bucking the party, bucking the system, uh, something tells me a little bit probably rubbed off on you. Absolutely. And that my dad, you know, taught me to always ask questions, to always investigate, um, to not just accept something as a truth just because it's being said to you by someone in um, authority, and to always fight for justice no matter what. Um, And so those are things that I've carried with me for my entire life. Yeah, uh, bucking the system. I'm going to jump right into it. Sure thing. There has been a long-term tradition called councilmanic prerogative. And when it comes to zoning and land use, councilmanic prerogative is the tradition that we have 10 districts. Yeah. Each district council member runs that district. And if a district council member wants something to be zoned uh, or used in a way that they deem necessary in their district, it is the tradition that all other nine district members, and of course the at-largers, 
fall in the line, no questions asked. That has always been, with very few exceptions, I think maybe Thatcher Longstreth did it once many, many years ago, but that's always been the rule. And then Jamie Gauthier came to city council, and you decided that that wasn't necessarily always going to be the way it goes from now on. Talk to me about Society Hill, exclusionary zoning, and the mayor's veto. Yeah, and so um, this was a bill um, that Councilmember Squilla was trying to uh, push forward that I think um, downzoned a significant uh, society hill. Um, and so, you know, a lot of uh, folks who are concerned about affordable housing um, and good city planning principles um, were pushing back against this as um, being exclusionary and, you know, as, as being harmful to the effort to generate more affordable housing, particularly in that part of the city. And so the mayor winded up um, vetoing the bill um, and we had to take a vote in council about whether we were going to, um, you know, sustain or override that veto. Um, and I voted to sustain the veto um and that was and that doesn't really happen a lot um in city council um but i also don't want to overstate you know the the extent to which i've pushed against um councilmanic prerogative because the truth is that it's very hard for one individual member to change that as a practice. There needs to be more of a, a an agreement among the body um, because the reality is if you don't support your colleagues' legislation in their district, then you will not get support for the things that you're trying to do. So I, I also want to be honest about that being one time that I pushed back against councilmanic prerogative, but I've also um, had to use it um, to push forward uh, progressive policies in my own district. Sure, you've benefited from the prerogative yourself. Uh, but here in Society Hill, down zoning means that the larger properties, single family homes, could not be zoned for residential multifamily. Right. Therefore, the larger the home in Society Hill, the more expensive. Right. The fewer smaller units, the less more approachable price points for folks who would like to move in. Thus, what they call exclusionary zoning, because we're excluding a good portion of, of uh, folks who live in Philadelphia who would otherwise perhaps be able to enter Society Hill, but for the lack of of smaller multifamily dwellings. Is that right? Yeah. And um, for me, um, you know, I have to say a piece of the issue that I've had, I had with that and um, that I also try to promote within my own district is that I think, I don't believe that whole sections of um, the city should be cordoned off only for wealthy people or that only wealthy people um, or, and people of means should be able to live um, in neighborhoods of choice, right? And so within my own district, I've worked really hard um, to mandate affordability in some of the most desirable areas of Center City because I think that everyone deserves to live in places where there's access to transit and schools that folks want to go to and parks and grocery stores and all of the things that we all want and need and working class yeah. people certainly um, deserve to have access to those amenities and to, and to good jobs as well yeah and we're going to get into that a little bit soon but you talk like an urban planner <laughs> and uh, you happen to be the only sitting member of council with an urban planning degree 
What made you get into that? After growing up as your dad's daughter, yeah, seeing him fight the good fight, you go to Penn and you decide you want to get into city planning. What drove you uh, towards that? I actually just started looking at area universities and looking at every single course of study to um, to see what I was interested in. And I came across this field of urban planning and urban studies. And I um, read about how it ties in things that I care about, um, like affordable housing and like um, the design of communities and community engagement. Um, and so I took a few courses just to see if I liked it. Um, and I did. Um, and then I marched right up to Penn and I asked them if I could be in their uh, urban planning program and the rest is is history and i ran for a district council seat in particular because i saw that as an even more powerful um, opportunity to help people to shape and create neighborhoods where they can truly thrive yeah you not only just ran for a district council seat <laughs> you ran for a seat that was held by a political dynasty Absolutely. in yeah. philadelphia mm-hmm. 40 plus years of the Blackwell family, the late Lucian and Jeannie uh, Blackwell. Um, what possessed you to, to, first of all, you know, incumbents don't lose typically in Philadelphia, especially ones with decades of entrenched experience and, a, and record and relationships. What possessed you? And how'd you do it? I knew I wanted to run for city council for at least a decade before I actually did it. Um, and I had been working in the nonprofit uh, world, um, working in various aspects of community and economic development and housing and leading nonprofits. And I wanted to run for council because I thought it was, I would have uh, more ability to make a positive impact on creating affordable housing and equitable neighborhoods. And in 2019, um, I just began to feel like the time was was here. The time was right. Um, first, I you know was just about to turn 40, and I started to think of that if I didn't do it, um, I would regret it, and I would always regret it. And then secondly, um, I had looked at recent elections. I looked at Krasner's election. I looked at Helen Gim's election. And, and Rebecca Reinhardt's election. And I was feeling that people were ready for, you know, new ideas, new leadership. Um, and we had reached a time where people weren't just going to vote for incumbents. Um, and so I could just feel it personally um, and politically that, you know, the time was right. And I decided to jump in and it was a good, I mean, I had to work really hard. Um, but, you know, my, I, I was pleased to find out that my initial hunch was, was actually right. Let's talk about the future of the third district a little bit. Over 7,000 building and zoning permits were pulled in 2019 alone. Um, and and it's actually gone up since then. Uh, you've got Drexel University and the University of Pennsylvania continue to build and grow. Uh, today, uh, Penn is the single largest employer in your district. Uh, one in eight Philadelphians across the city work at Penn or at a pen-related facility. Uh, And they generate tens of billions of dollars a year for the economy. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you're dealing with gentrification and the push and pull of development and how it rubs up against older neighborhoods. Uh, Some of them uh, uh, 
with infrastructure that is being ignored by City Hall. How are you, where do you start? How are you handling it? What are your priorities? Sure. Um, I think we start and we succeed by making sure that there is equity in um, every aspect of um, how we look at housing and resource housing um, and um, in how we invest um, in our neighborhoods. Um, One, I'll say that I believe as a policymaker that it is my responsibility to make sure that there is justice and equity in development. Um, That's why I created um, the Mixed Income Neighborhoods Overlay, which within, you know, the majority of my district and primarily in University City um, requires that there be at least 20 percent deep affordability in any development, rental or homeownership um, that is 10 units or more. Um, I think it's and the reason why I did that is because we weren't seeing any affordable housing being generated um, by the private market. Um, I think we have to stand on this issue and say that working class people deserve to live in neighborhoods of choice and deserve to remain in the neighborhoods that they have built, um, that they have stewarded, and that their families have called home for generations. Um, additionally, yeah. the most uh, that, uh, I just uh, you partnered with a council yes. uh, member, Maria Quinones Sanchez, yes. who uh, was on the f- first season of this uh, show. Oh, okay. And she, her line was, the most affordable home is the one that people already live in. Yeah. Um, and so you have, in her district, you have the overlay. Yeah. And in your district, you have the overlay. But between those two districts in the city itself, still nothing. Is that right? Well, well, not so fast. Like, I, you know, I, I do not mind being a trailblazer. I'll say that. But I've seen other people start to borrow this idea. We saw the council president introduce a mandatory inclusionary zoning bill in his district, um, you know, this this fall. Right. We are we just, I think, voted out of committee yesterday an expansion of the mixed income neighborhoods overlay that extends into the fourth district. And so I don't mind being first (laughs) um, and working with, you know, my colleagues to make sure that we have this type of housing equity um, in every part of of the city. And certainly, you know, we need much more investment into our existing affordable housing stock. However, everything that's being built in neighborhoods right now is going to determine who can be in neighborhoods and who gets locked out of neighborhoods. And that's why I think it's incredibly important that we demand that these new developments include um, housing that people in our communities can actually afford and benefit from. So 10 units or above, mm-hmm. 20% required to be set aside for affordable. Yeah. And that and that is defined by, I guess, your office in the planning commission. Is that right? 50% AM, uh, 40% uh, t- AMI for 40 rental, AMI. Um, okay. which is a single person making about 30, almost 30,000 a year. Um, or a family of four making about 47000 a year, and then 60% AMI for home ownership, because obviously you have to earn a, lo- a little more to be able to um, afford um, and maintain a home. But that is, that is you know, it's not affordable to everyone, but that is deeply affordable housing. And the reason that we wanted to achieve those totals is because when I first started, um, I did a study of the affordable housing in my district, um, 
And what I found was that the average third district resident is, is at about 34% um, of AMI in terms of their, um, in terms of their income. And so I wanted to keep those numbers um, within grasp of the people who actually live in my community. Do developers have the option of paying into the um, low income housing trust instead of building the affordable units? In this policy, you can have 5% of the 20% requirement waived, but only 5%. And that was intentional. Um, I think it's really important to get the units. Um, as, as, as I was saying before, what gets the real estate, the bricks and mortar determines who can be in the neighborhood. And I don't think it's enough to say we're just going to pay into this fund for affordable housing that can be built somewhere. Right. I think we need affordable housing in um, neighborhoods of opportunity. The other thing is that, um, you know, the money that's supposed to go into the housing trust fund actually goes to the city's general fund. And then the mayor determines how much of that goes to the housing trust fund and for what purpose, where. Um, if my district is generating a lot of that housing, you know, that means that I don't have any and, and my constituents have no direct guarantee that that money that is getting paid to the general fund is going to result in affordable housing in our community. And so it was really important um, for us to really mandate that these units get built. Additionally, when we were um, putting forward and getting this law passed, we also changed the voluntary policy as well um, to increase um, the payments that, that are allowed. Now, let's talk about some of the projects that were going on before you got to, to be the first, uh, I'm sorry, the third district uh, council member. Um, University City Townhomes. That's been around a long time. I know that's the fight that you were uh, taking on. Uh, they've been there on the 3900 block of Market Street for quite some time. They had a HUD contract that required them to uh, provide affordable housing. Properties are now for sale. They're not interested in the HUD requirement. Uh, you've said a, at least a couple years ago you were going to do everything you could if there, in fact, was something you could do uh, to make sure those folks weren't displaced. What's going on with those folks who have been there for generations? at the University City Townhomes. So I, ha I can't say a lot about this because, uh, as you may be aware, this court, uh, I mean, this case is in litigation. Um, yep. uh, I was actually sued by uh, the company that owns that property. I did in federal court for um, a zoning overlay um, that I put in place um, in late, uh, in, in 2021 that, um, puts a temporary demolition moratorium in um, the area of the overlay and also requires affordable housing. Um, after that bill was passed in March of 2021, um, I did sue me um, in federal court as an individual, as a council person, and also sued the city of Philadelphia. Um, and we've been um, in federal court ever since. I will say and at the same time that the case has been in litigation, in the background, we've been trying to come to um, a settlement. Um, and I do think, um, I do think, I do 
see hope on the horizon on the horizon for a settlement that will be good for um, the people impacted and as well as the the broader area. So I, I can't say a lot now about what's going on with the townhomes, but I look forward to being able to say a lot more and I'll even come back if you want me to come back. <laughs> Thank you. That's encouraging, actually. Uh, I think you just made a little bit of news there. 4601 Market Street was looked at by the administration as a place to put the, the Philadelphia Police Department headquarters. There was uh, tens of millions of dollars uh, put into that property to prepare it for such. Turned out the PPD did not want to go there. They decided for the old Inquirer building on North Broad. Uh, something did, in fact, go there that's been hailed as a success, uh, a, a campus with a, a, lots of different activities. And now these folks want to build uh, 1,200 homes on the site. And none of them have to be affordable, apparently. And so, from what I understand, you're pushing for some of them to, in fact, be affordable. Where are we with uh, that project? That's a lot of homes. Absolutely. This is a very important site. Um, this is a 13-acre site that was formerly owned by the city um, that the city invested $52 million into before it decided not to use it as the police headquarters. And the property was sold to Ironstone at $10 million, for $10 million under the promise that they would build a public health campus on the site, which they have. Um, but unbeknownst to the city, um, Ironstone um, came along, you know, last year um, to put forward a project for 1,250 luxury housing units on the same site that was never um, agreed to uh, by the city of Philadelphia. And so, um, you know, my expectation is that if Ironstone now would like to change um, their agreement of sale for this public land that was invested uh, heavily into by the city of Philadelphia, that there needs to be um, community benefit. Um, with regards to that. Um, They also submitted their application for permits um, a few weeks, I believe, before um, my mandatory inclusionary zoning um, went into effect in an effort to skirt um, the 20% um, requirement. And I just think all of it is egregious. The city put its trust um, into Ironstone with this um, parcel of land. Um, This sits in a gentrifying area where housing prices are rising due to the pressures caused by university and other forms of institutional um, expansion, as well as the growth of the life sciences industry. Um, And, you know, the people in the community deserve to to be able to have a shot at living in um, this space. And so if Ironstone um, is going to build housing here um, as a floor, um, at least 20% of that housing should be affordable to the folks who, who live here and who badly need um, affordable housing in, in, in the community. Where So where is that? Where Are they willing to talk to you? Is that in discussions? I mean, where are we? They've not been willing um, to to speak to the city about it. The city has been trying to engage Ironstone um, on this project and, um, you know, on uh, uh, including affordable housing in this project for months and months and months. And they've also not only been evading the city, but they've been evading public input. Yesterday, we had what was supposed to be a public meeting. Um, Almost 100 people um, showed up to participate. Um, Ironstone refused to participate in person because they said they felt unsafe. 
uh, among our community um, who wants to be in the room to talk about the future of our community with folks who um, are trying to develop here. And so um, the community, they, they, Ironstone um, was virtual, but the community was in the room. There were all types of tech problems and the community didn't get a chance to have any of their concerns adequately heard um, or, or answered. So um, they've not been um, honest uh, actors and brokers in this, in this project, and they've been very disrespectful to the community and to the city. Hmm. 6,000 homeless folks live in the city of Philadelphia. About 1,000 of them live on the street every day. Uh, You were uh, very involved in negotiating a deal with the homeless encampment on the Benjamin Franklin Parkway in the wake of the George Floyd um, uh, protests. And there had been a deal that was brokered where there would be 50 homes given to 50 individuals placed in a pilot program uh, and funding for two tiny villages, uh, small homes, 400 square feet and under was at least the plan. Um, How much of that has actually turned into reality 2023? Uh, um, Not too much of it, unfortunately. Um, So the reason why I got involved in that, along with Councilmember Brooks, is that I thought at a very basic level, those activists were were right and that they were saying their basic premise was um, we have more uh, city owned properties than we have um, people who are houseless. And we should be using those properties and using our land um, to house people if we believe that housing is a human right. I think that is really simple. I think it's really true. Um, and I think it's really just. And that's why um, we got involved in um, helping to negotiate um, between the activists um, and the residents of the encampment in the city. Um, so through those negotiations, um, the city did agree that, and PHA did agree that 50 properties would go to um, the activists and to put into a community land trust um, and that they would fix up those homes um, for people who are houseless. Um, I think, though, I mean, that's a hard thing to do um, for um, any organization, um, much less um, a newer grassroots organization. Also, tragically, one of the main organizers, um, Jen Bennett, died of COVID um, yeah. during the pandemic. And I think she was really a force um, in in that whole movement. So I think there were a lot of things that um, kind of set things back more than the organizers uh, would like to have seen. I mean, I can't profess to speak directly for them, though. You would have to. Of course. Yeah. Um, and you and you were not, you know, in, in quote unquote, in charge on the city, on, yeah. on the city side either. You mentioned uh, council member Brooks, along with council member, former council member Gim. The three of you, someone tagged you, not me, uh, <laughs> as Philly's version of the squad. Uh you know, take that for what it's worth. Uh, and they had a very different perspective on what I believe to be a very important piece of legislation than you had. Okay. And I want to talk about a constituent of yours, uh, a late constituent of yours, Mr. Walter Wallace, who oh. was, um, was a resident Ooh. of your district who suffered from mental health challenges uh, and who, uh, because during an episode, 
of you know of, of mental uh, health crises. He uh, armed only with a butter knife. Committed no crime other than being ill, and that's no and that's no crime. Ended up dead at the hands of a couple of police officers because they were shot. He was shot and killed. Um, that really that story more than any of them really hit hit me hard. Yeah. Um, knowing just how much, uh, how many people in this city uh, are struggling with mental health issues. That could have been any one of our sons, brothers, daughters, sisters, you know. Um, when asked why the police department didn't use less lethal force, the police commissioner said they didn't have tasers because they didn't have the funding for them. And when council then reacted by putting forward a proposal to fund those tasers, a less lethal way police officers can engage with your constituents, your two squad mates voted against the funding. Um, but you didn't. I think making it crystal clear the difference between a district council person who actually runs something and, and a at-large council person. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, first I'll say I'll never forget watching that video. I'll never, um, and, and seeing how, you know, this was a person that was clearly in distress. His mom, his neighbors were begging for compassion and the police arrived on the scene and within 41 seconds of that interaction, he was dead. And even, you know, at one point I got to watch like the extended body camera footage and the the officers didn't even I don't really it didn't seem like they understood what happened and what they had done. And so when that legislation came across city council, um, I had to vote for it because I understand the concerns about tasers that that some progressives have. but. I also could not in good conscience vote against something that might have changed that moment um, and, and, and could have created a situation where Walter Wallace Jr. is alive. So I do believe that we need um, you know, mental health resources to address mental health crisis. But I always go back to that moment. And if there was any way um, to make sure that, you know, Walter Wallace Jr. could have come out of that interaction alive, I'm going to take that way, um, even if it's not perfect. Um, so, yes, thank you for the question. Well, it's a lot more perfect than a gun, mm-hmm. right? The future of West Philadelphia, of your district, are you bullish on it? Is it bright? Absolutely. This has been a really tough um, several years, but I feel like, you know, we're going up, we're on the upswing and I'm really excited about, um, new, uh, people coming off the council, new ideas, new energy, um, new energy, um, and, and the mayor's office and what that will bring, um, for the city. Uh, I, I think this is going to be a time of optimism for the city. And I'm really, uh, excited, um, to, to get to be a part of it. Awesome. Well, we look forward to seeing everything you're going to do 
with your next four years. I think you're running unopposed now. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> and, and, well then, good uh, congratulations in advance, I suppose. Thank you. Uh, before I let you go, West Philadelphia, very well known for all its great food. Um, and I know as a district council person, you're on the pavement all the time, every day, all day. Where do you go? Oh, I love for that it. one meal. That one meal. I need that one meal. What? Where do you go? That is so. I know it's hard. hard. I know. Um, I'm gonna say I'm gonna go with Abyssinia, but it's very hard to give one meal. Say it again. <laughs> Abyssinia, which is Ethiopian food. And where is it located? Um, it's on Forty Fifth, I believe, in Locust. In Baltimore. No. Oh, Locust. Mm-hmm. Okay. Forty Fifth and Locust. Yeah. Awesome. Well, the first time I've had Ethiopian food was in your district, yeah. uh, and it's some of the best yeah. uh, that I've ever had. Absolutely. So, <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to encourage everyone listening to get there. Uh, Council Member Jamie Gauthier, thank you so very much for your time. Um, again, have fun on the campaign trail, and we'll see you on the other side of the primary. Thank you so much for having me. Well, folks, thanks for joining us today on the second season premiere of Philly Built. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Philadelphia zoning, visit us at phillyzoning.com. And we'll see you next time.